Listeners, this is Dan, and I have Brian out there with me. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. And we are here for the 151st episode of The Goods, a film podcast. So, Brian, I wanted to pick a offbeat Christmas movie. So, you know, it's gotten kind of old in the online discourse. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And I feel like that's one of those things where... Uh, it just it's kind of like how bacon was a thing on the Internet for like five years. Everything was bacon, this and that. And then and that's just one of those things that like you can't go more than a couple threads in movies without normies talking about, oh, Die Hard secretly a great Christmas movie. I don't know. I got kind of tired of that discourse. Is that is that something you've run into at all? Yes, I don't really have a dog in the fight. I actually have never seen Die Hard. So I can't pass judgment one way or the other. My opinion is if it's set at Christmas, you can count it as a Christmas movie. What I think stretches it is if it's a story that takes place over a year and you have a scene set at Christmas, then I don't think you can count it. Interesting. Yeah. I was just listening to the podcast, The Big Picture, and they do some of their episodes. They do movie drafts, like fantasy drafts on a topic or a year and they did a holiday draft one, I think back in 2021, a holiday movie draft and their approach was kind of similar to what you just said. Basically like it needs to culminate around Christmas or a winter holiday, or that needs to be like the backdrop for all the action. So like, I don't think you could, would call La La Land a Christmas movie, even though it has winter stuff in it, you know? Right. Like Toy Story has got a Christmas scene. Swiss Family Robinson has a Christmas scene, but it's part of a broader scope of somebody's life. Right. Now, I sometimes see Harry Potter 1 listed as a Christmas movie because it has a a really memorable section about Christmas. And that to me is kind of interesting because that is kind of memorable. And there is something about the, you know, boarding school, snowy backdrops uh, that we get. That really does make you think of Christmas. I don't know. It like feels like a movie you watch with a cup of hot cocoa. Right. Plus, it's British, and I feel like they get some extra Christmas points, at least from the American perspective. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, that one would be borderline case for me. So I don't know. But I wanted to pick something in the vein of you don't think of it as a Christmas movie, but it is a Christmas movie. So like something that Die Hard would be if that discourse hadn't been played out. And I had read online that the writer and director Shane Black was known for setting his stories at Christmas. It's just, I guess, in the way that he likes to tell stories, something about Christmas heightens the story for him. So something like two thirds of the scripts that he's got a writing credit on are set at Christmas. And that includes today's selection, 
which is his directorial debut, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So, Brian, did you get a chance to catch up with this one? Yeah, I checked it out. And that title comes from something. I think what there was some writer about the hard-boiled detective noir genre, and he said that what a good story needed was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I was going to look it up. Who said that? Like, this writer is referencing the lore and the history of hard-boiled detective fiction. Right. So I think some of that comes in from the genre and the background, the way that this film got made. The origin of that phrase, I think, comes from some British writer basically used that as like a derisive summary of what a James Bond movie was like in the 60s. And then Pauline Kael, who was a really influential critic, kind of adopted that. I think she might have even like titled one of her books, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And she kind of like reclaimed it as the essence of movies is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's action and romance. It's like Nicole Kidman, the type of things that she's talking about when she does her little AMC intro. Yeah, it's like the two halves of Titanic. That's true. Yeah. So and I think what drew Shane Black to the title. Now, if you read through the production notes on this, he went through a bunch of different working titles on this. Uh, it was going to be called You'll Never Die in This Town Again. That was the initial title. And then he renamed it LAPI. And then he eventually landed on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I think some of that comes from the origin story of this script. So basically, how, how familiar were you with Shane Black before this week? I hadn't heard the name until just now when you said it. Gotcha. So he's kind of an interesting character in Hollywood recent history. So every now and again, some like young writer will take the world by storm take usually it's like in a specific genre so like there have been a bunch of different examples like we talked about kevin williamson he wrote scream when he was like in his 20s and it totally reshaped horror movies and he was like the, the term you sometimes see is wunderkind how do you say that in german yeah that was that was a pretty good pronunciation gotcha and Another example that you'll sometimes see is Nora Ephron. She wrote a whole bunch of rom-coms and kind of changed the image of what a rom-com was. I don't know exactly how old she was, but she like her, her third or fourth movie that she wrote was When Harry Met Sally, which basically codified the modern rom-com, you know, and a lot of these people, I, I don't exactly know all these writers backstories, but like the image of this kind of writer is like someone who just puts pen to paper and through the sheer magic and ability and storytelling prowess, they get their their story into Hollywood and on screen. And they're kind of like what people dream that they will be when, when they sit down and start writing their first screenplay. It's like, I'm going to be the next blank. Well, Shane Black was one of these guys. So when he graduated from college, like towards the end of his college career, he and his buddy got into writing screenplays. They had been writing other stuff, creative stuff in the past. And they started writing screenplays and then he didn't get a job out of college. He worked at a theater. He was temping. And in the back of his mind, he's like, man, what I'd really want to be is a movie writer, someone who writes screenplays. I feel like the image of a movie writer has diminished over time. The great script writer, like you don't really hear too often 
people being famous just for writing screenplays as much as you used to. Right. Yeah. People basically don't know scriptwriters' names. But if I told you that the same person wrote Disney's Aladdin, Shrek, and Pirates of the Caribbean, like, screenwriters have influence. Yeah. Because there's obviously some threads tying those things together. Or, like, the Kasdans, you know? That's true, yeah. So, there, I mean, there are some, but I think in all of those cases, those are all 20-plus years ago. I feel like you, you see hear that less now, you know? Right. But Shane Black eventually, like, he got an in in the movie business, and he got some interviews where he showed him some stuff he'd, he'd written. And at first, they hired him to basically, like, spice up the dialogue of scripts that they already had because it turned out his specialty was like witty banter between characters and i think that plays out in this film as we'll see but he eventually got a chance to write his own script and what he wrote was lethal weapon which basically codified the buddy cop movie have you ever seen lethal weapon actually haven't seen that one either that one's pretty good i saw it once when i was either in college or right out of college and i remember thinking that it's kind of like if you go back and watch Halloween now, it's like the prototype of the genre. So in some ways it feels almost like hackneyed or like a simple execution, basic execution of tropes we now recognize. It's like the buddy cop tropes are like so ingrained in pop culture now that Lethal Weapon was very good, but it like didn't sparkle for me. Um, it's like it, I was thinking of in... Do you remember in the first season of Community when Abed basically tricks Shirley and Annie into being buddy cops? And at one point he plays the chief who kicks him off the case. <laughs> it rings a bell. It's a great scene. Well, I'll, I'll drop it in the Discord. Find us at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. You can join our Discord. We drop podcast episode multimedia and ephemera in there. Speaking of multimedia, we've started having the zoom cameras on when we meet for these things for a long long time it was audio only now we've got the cameras on and it looks like you got a good haircut dan oh i did yes uh, my hair was really long like two days ago and now it's trimmed yeah it's looking sharp he's got that crisp fade thank you yeah my but my barber bumped up his price from 30 dollars to 40 dollars just a couple months ago 40 dollars for a basic dude's haircut He's lucky he's good at what he does. Well, I guess that's what a $40 haircut will get you. Mine has less pizzazz, as they say on Futurama. Need another $300 haircut. This one's lost its pizzazz. <laughs> if I wasn't so well established with this one guy where I just go in and he says, I, I have this one reference picture on my phone that I have saved to my favorites and I just show it to him. And he said, you want the number two on the sides again? And I say, yep. And he says, you want the taper style on the back again? I say, yep. And I sit down and he, he always makes it look good and pretty much the same style every time. And, uh, and he's also close to my old house. So if he wasn't good, I would probably just go find like a, what's the name of one of the big franchises? Like the hair cuttery yeah, or something like that uh, near my house. But yeah. Also, your old house is not super far from your new house. No, I mean, but when there's a barber that's two minutes from my house, why am I driving 12 minutes to my my old barber, but yeah. I guess that's true, but I might have to hit up your guy, even if he's expensive, because I always feel self-conscious trying to give my barber instructions. It's like, I didn't train to cut hair, you did. <laughs> 
So you tell me how to make it look good, and I don't know, I'm often dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. Well, I always think you look pretty sh- sharp yourself, Brian, so... Well, it's, thank it's you. It's not, it's not ruining your look or anything, so... Anyways, I forget even what we were talking about. Shane Black and, and Lethal Weapon. So he was now one of these, like, young, hot, wunderkind screenwriters, and he wrote a bunch of movies... Some that I, I I've seen a couple of them and and they all tend to be pretty good. I, I actually think he's a pretty pretty sharp writer in general. Have you seen Last Action Hero, which is the one where I think it's Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger comes out of a movie, right? Yeah, and that one's really good and really funny. Like it's better than I would have expected from the logline. I've heard good things. I haven't seen that one either. I got to do my homework. That one I'd have it like a, a soft six probably on the is a good scale. I will say the dialogue in this one that we just watched, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, sparkled. It was definitely, like, slickly written. Maybe a little self-indulgent, but it had verve. It had style. It reminded me of when we watched Brick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ryan Johnson's first movie, yeah. So after he had been working for a few years, he had started... Some of the movies he, he was writing started to bomb. Like, they weren't making a lot of money. And so he kind of went out of demand, and he was trying to think about how to revive his career. He kind of like went into hiatus for a while. And eventually he decided what he was going to do was write and direct his own movie. And he was going to go out of genre. Like basically all of his movies were action comedies, usually buddy comedies, usually set at Christmas. And he's like, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to write a romantic comedy and I'm going to direct it myself. Except when he started writing it, he said he just couldn't help himself. He basically started it as a rom-com and i think you can see the bones of it there but then oh he added a murder in there oh he added the buddy who's going to be the other detective with the main character oh well i guess it's basically just a buddy comedy murder mystery again but the other thing he wanted to do is he wanted it to make make it reflective of like his journey to hollywood fame and how all of hollywood is kind of toxic sometimes but also glamorous sometimes stuff that we've talked about a lot especially with Movies about making movies month and when we talked about La La Land and all that. So you definitely see some of that in there. But I think you can, if you like watch the movie with it in mind that it was initially just going to be a romantic comedy in Hollywood. And then he sort of like grafted in a murder mystery and a buddy comedy. You can kind of see that in the residue, I think. And that's actually why he decided to call it Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is he thought it was catchy and marketable, but he also... It was like an inside joke that he initially wrote it as a kiss kiss movie, a romantic comedy, and it turned into a bang bang movie, uh, a, a crime action story. So I, I actually think it's a pretty clever and memorable title. Yeah, I remember back when this came out, seeing the trailers and things and just noticing that that was an ear catching title, attention grabber. Right. And so when the movie was getting cast, he didn't get a lot of budget to make this movie. The budget was like 12 or $15 million or something like that, which, you know, for like an action movie, that's really low, you know? And so he kind of had to get creative with his casting. And so Robert Downey Jr. was at that point in his career arc when he was like damaged goods, you know, like uh, always out partying, playboy, a nightmare to work with on set and all that. And he, this was like right around the time that RDJ was starting to get his act together. And he's like, all right, I need something for a comeback. 
And he happened to be dating like the secretary of the producer of this movie and got his foot in the door to do an audition and ended up getting cast as the lead in this. So it's a guy named Harry Lockhart, played by Robert Downey Jr. Meanwhile, the buddy, the the secondary detective here, is played by Val Kilmer, who basically wanted to get out of his wheelhouse as like the super muscle-bound, dumb action hero guy and into comedies and lighter stuff. It's like something out of his typecast. And so he was also willing to work on a discount in something that was against type for him. Also against type for him because he's written as a gay character. And I think like we'll talk. I want to talk a little bit about the incessant gay jokes in this movie and how it's very, very 2005. But I think like that was a little bit out of the wheelhouse of someone who's known for being like a big, tough, muscular guy. Have you seen much Val Kilmer? I'm trying to think if I've seen any. I know he was Batman after it wasn't Michael Keaton anymore. I think he just did Batman Forever. What else has Val Kilmer done? So he was in Top Gun. He actually now has health problems, like pretty serious health problems. And he appears in Top Gun Maverick, too, in uh, a kind of a surprise cameo. It's like the most emotional moment of that movie is when he returns as Iceman in Top Gun Maverick. But... He was in a couple of other things. So uh, he was in Tombstone, which I haven't seen. And he was in True Romance. So I guess not like the dumbest action stuff, but all like drama stuff. I think he might have also been in the Jim Morrison biopic that Oliver Stone did, which I haven't seen. So what this episode is driving home for me is there's a lot of movies I still have to see. So we can just keep the show going. Don't worry, listeners. No need to stop at 150. Yeah, there we go. And then the romantic character is played by Michelle Monaghan. Monaghan? I don't quite know how you say it. That's been a thing for us a lot in the recent episodes, I've noticed, is we don't know quite how to say people's names we've seen written, but not necessarily. It's like you don't necessarily hear the names of actors said aloud, even if you watch a lot of movies, you know, because it's not like people say their names. You kind of have to go look for interviews online or something like that. So I think it's pronounced Monaghan or Monahan. Probably Monaghan. Had you seen this actress before? I don't think so. She is another thing that gets your attention about this movie. For me. Yeah, oh yeah. She She's really, really pretty in this. Really attractive. She was also in Mission Impossible 3 around this time, which I saw and liked back in the day. I don't think I've seen it since then. And I also watched, during my time loop binge, back in 2021, uh, Source Code, which is kind of a micro time loop where the main character who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal relives the same eight minutes over and over again. And Michelle Monaghan is in, in that one too. I think she like had kind of lost some of her celebrity and then she starred in that, that true detective show, which was a sensation. Do you, do you remember true detective? I'm aware of it. It wasn't it on HBO. Yeah, it was like an award-winning HBO show back when I was following TV really closely. It was really buzzy. That was back in 2014. Yeah, I've never had HBO. There was at one point a stretch on Amazon Prime where they had some deal that they like put up all the old HBO shows. So I watched The Wire and I watched Flight of the Concords and I was thinking about watching The Sopranos, but I didn't get around to it. Now you need to get just Max, I think it's called. 
one of those things where they renamed it like five times. It was HBO Now, HBO Go, HBO Max, and then just Max. I might have to. They can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> can't keep getting away with it. I quote that meme a lot despite never having seen Breaking Bad. Yeah, that line is from very near the end of Breaking Bad. And then pretty soon after that, he stops getting away with it. <laughs> and I think in some ways the movie worked as Shane Black wanted it to work, where he got the chance to make more movies that he wanted to make. And it was pretty well received. It wasn't like a, a huge sensation. I think it has like 80% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. But he got, he got to make further movies. His The second movie he made was Iron Man 3, because the real winner of this was uh, Robert Downey Jr., who, based on this, John Favreau, um, who directed Iron Man, saw this movie, thought that Robert Downey Jr. Jr. was hilarious in it and great in it. And I agree with him and brought him in for Iron Man, which obviously ended up being like a game changer for movies as a whole, let alone Robert Downey Jr. And Shane Black got pulled in to direct Iron Man 3. That was his second movie. And then he's made two movies since. He made The Nice Guys, which so many people have said is is really funny and really good. And now that I know that it's a Shane Black movie, somehow I didn't know that it was. And now that I kind of have a better sense of what a Shane Black movie is, I'll probably check that one out sometime soon. I might have to watch that too. I did like Iron Man 3. My favorite thing about Iron Man 3 was the credits song, which I felt like they should have moved earlier in the movie because it was so good. It's called something like romp and stomp or something i don't know the it's this instrumental tune that sounds like it could be from like a 60s spy movie it kind of sounds like the michael giacchino score for the incredibles oh yeah yeah that that's nice i hit a roadblock on my mcu rewatch spree i got through like four of them i was trying to have it be like kind of a snarky recap as i went through it in my reviews and I, it just got to be, even after like four or five of them, which is now something like 10% of all of the Marvel movies, I was like, I need to pause on this. I'll probably come back to it and like not be quite so recappy, be, but be more focused on just uh, some quick thoughts as I, as I plow through it on my MCU retrospective. But yeah, I, I say that because I actually have not seen Iron Man 3. That is one of the ones I, I never watched. Yeah, I have definitely not kept up with the MCU, but I watched, you know, the ones that had Avengers in the name. I watched the Iron Man. I watched the Guardians ones. And I watched Ant-Man. And that's about it. Picked and choosed. Well, I'm about ready to hop into the plot of this, Brian. What about you? Me too. And the title of the... Iron Man 3 credit track is Can You Dig It? Can You Dig It? All right, you got to drop that in the Discord. So a couple things now that we're, we're actually talking about the, the movie itself. One is this is very intentionally a neo-noir. So it's, it's not just a murder mystery, buddy cop, sort of rom-com. It's also very much like a throwback to... Movies like DOA, which we talked about pretty early in our, our run. And we kind of had mixed feelings on the, the hard-boiled plotting style. 
I think you described it as confusing and I might have used the word convoluted. It's like a lot of motion of the plot where it's like, oh, this one thing that was mentioned or character that appeared turns out to be a part of this bigger conspiracy. And you might not have known it, but now it draws these two subplots together, except this person was lying to this person. And you get like one of those every five minutes and it like makes your head spin. Right. The detective character is always running from somebody and new characters are showing up all the time and they're all connected in strange ways and big reveals all the time. There's like secret siblings and it's a lot to keep track of and it seems to kind of intentionally be so. Yeah. And I I like this kind of storytelling in small doses, but I can see why it would be off-putting. It's a kind of thing like it feels clever. You know, like you watch it and you're like, oh, that was clever. I didn't quite get it, but that was kind of cool. And it's just like a lot of that sensation. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about about these kinds of stories? That was definitely my appraisal of DOA. I found this one a little bit more palatable. Okay. And you are kind of, I guess, handheld by Robert Downey Jr.'s narration. His like internal monologue is running the whole time and is generally funny and stylish. So I think I kept up with the plot. And then another thing before we get to the point by point, Christmas movie, yay or nay on this one? Actually, I would say yes, Christmas movie. I agree. I wasn't sure in the very first scene because it starts out with them as like kids before jumping forward. But then very early on, like first three minutes, Robert Downey Jr. says, let me tell you the story of what happened last Christmas. And Michelle Monaghan spends a solid half of the movie in this skimpy fake Santa outfit. You definitely see like Christmas trees and Christmas lights like kind of on this, the outside of the frame throughout the whole movie. So I don't know if it has any themes that you would consider Christmas themes about family or whatever. Uh, whatever you think uh, the theme should be for a Christmas movie. I don't think this has that, but it's got the trappings, you know. And it's Christmas in L.A., so you've got a pool party like La La Land. Right, yeah. So you mentioned the narration by Robert Downey Jr., and it's it's pretty interesting because it's like telling the story of the telling. It's like he's talking about the story as he does it. It's got like a meta bent to it. Yeah, it's like he's reading the movie to you. Right. So we learn in this movie that he he's Harry Lockhart, Robert Downey Jr., and he's he's a petty criminal who in this kind of opening sequence after we see a flashback of him when he was a kid after a robbery, when he's grown up, there's the, it's this whole sort of goofy thing where his partner gets shot and he's like running away. And then the cops are after him and he like barges into this room, which happens to be a movie audition. And he like grabs the script and starts reading the lines as if he's auditioning for the movie but it turns out that the movie that he's auditioning for, the character that he's supposed to be also had a partner just die. So like he gets to confront the death of his crime partner as he's acting in scene. And I think it sets a good tone for the movie. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang doesn't really have all that much set around the making of movies. I kind of thought it was going to be a whole lot of that at first because that's what this first scene is. I mean, it is in Hollywood and like the big bad ends up being a movie producer, you know. Um, so it's definitely in there, but I did think tonally, at least this, this did a good job of 
of setting the pace for for kiss kiss bang bang oh also the downey jr character was a magician as a kid who grew up to be a thief and so it had me thinking of the now you see me films and it made me want robert downey jr to join the cast if in fact now you see me three ever happens man he would be so good for those movies and his performance is so moving because they they read it as method acting when he's like leaning into being sad about the death of his partner that they give him the role or maybe he gets a second audition or something. I don't quite know exactly what it is, but he regardless, he gets to move to Hollywood and he gets to shadow a private investigator. That is what his character is supposed to be. So like the idea here is that he's not actually going to be a private investigator. He's an actor who through this sort of method acting observation is going to learn what a private investigator really does. And the guy that he gets assigned to is Val Kilmer. And this investigator goes by the name of Gay Perry. So I mentioned it before. The gay jokes in this movie have not aged super great overall. It's it's playing against type of like a gay stereotype. But it's still, like, embracing it. Right, he doesn't have the, like, cliched mannerisms, but you never don't know that he's gay. You're, like, reminded every time he shows up. Right, and it's like, har har, he's actually gay, har har. And it's like doing the thing where you kind of make a joke about it, but, oh, we're pointing at the joke. So it's not really a stereotype if we're pointing out the fact that we're referencing those things and doing it against it. But it still sort of is, because, like, you're still holding those initial stereotypes as like the standard, basically, you know, I don't know. And some of the jokes with him being gay are kind of funny, but I, I lost steam on him being gay about maybe 15 minutes into the movie. And then there was another 75 minutes left. That's one thing that definitely dates this, this movie a little bit, very, very 2005 in, in that manner. But while Harry, Robert Downey Jr. is shadowing him, I guess. They're doing this stakeout and all of a sudden the stakeout gets disrupted because they see this car crashing into a lake and it's these two masked men are dumping a body into the lake. And this is where we really get a good sense of the banter that's in this film. And so I want to say now that for whatever my reactions to basically anything else the banter in this movie is so funny that it like almost moves too fast. It's how clever it is. There would be a really funny line and I would be like processing it and starting to laugh at it. And then the next quip would come. It's just got like a really, really zesty paste of, of banter. And I was laughing pretty hard in particular, like the back and forth between Val Kilmer as like a seasoned detective and Robert Downey Jr. as an idiot. Uh, who's kind of bumbling through it and doing his like smart ass quipping the whole time uh, is very good. Yeah, so much of the humor comes from Robert Downey Jr. being our point of view and like him thinking that he's suave and accomplished and then Val Kilmer just repeatedly tearing him down because he's like, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what you're doing and you're stupid. Yeah, it keeps working. It keeps being good. And so this this body that they find in the lake is a young woman who's been murdered 
Val Kilmer's like, we just got to get out of here. We don't want anything to do with what's going on here. It has nothing to do with our stakeout. Let's just leave. But already, of course, Harry's kind of jumped in and like called out to the guy, the masked men. And so they're running away from it. Meanwhile, I don't can't remember if this happens right before or right after. I think it's before he, he bumps into his childhood crush, Harmony. So this is Michelle Monaghan. And we learn that she actually grew up as friends with Harry. And in fact, the a very first scene, the flashback with him as a magician, he does like a saw a woman in half trick. And the girl that he saws in half is Michelle Monaghan when she was a kid. So it's kind of cool how like we keep coming back to that intro scene and more pieces of it end up being relevant as the movie goes along. And so now we kind of have the threesome here that are the, the core cast. We got Harry, we got Gay Perry, and we have Harmony. And one thing that Harry does is he basically tells Harmony that he's a real private investigator because she is trying to solve her sister's recent death. So her sister recently killed herself, except she doesn't believe that it was a suicide. She thinks it was a murder. And as this is going, like Brian said, we, we this is all framed from like the narration, this sort of like meta commenting on the story by the Robert Downey Jr. character. And he basically points out up front like, gee, in a mystery story, sure would be likely that this sister's death and the thing that happened to me end up crossing and being a part of the same big story because there's like this one author that that a bunch of the characters in the movie are obsessed with i'm pretty sure he was a fictional author i didn't recognize the name as a real name but he's basically like a pulp mystery author and apparently that's the structure of the the way this this mystery author writes stories is there's two interrelated stories but then they always end up colliding at the end and so like it gets lampshaded on that once with the characters just talking about it in scene and second with uh, Robert Downey Jr. talking about it in his narration as well. And then uh, around this time also, when Harry gets back to his apartment, he finds in his bathroom the body of the woman that they had seen in the car a few scenes earlier, like out at a lake. But now all of a sudden the body shows up in his bathroom. It must have been a lot of work to accomplish that. Seriously. And like in the pretty quickly, too, you know, because I, I don't know exactly the timeline, but like bringing her from the lake to his apartment and then Robert Downey Jr. gets there and it's already there. But it also implies that it's happening really quickly because like the police have already been called that there's a body in his apartment. It's like a whole big frame up thing. And it's kind of fun because these are also tropes that you see in noir movies like from the 40s and stuff. You know, you have. The woman who comes knocking on the door with the case that nobody else will take. And you got the mysterious body that appears and you got a big frame up and a big conspiracy, except it, it feels kind of zesty and fresh and, and modern, not just a throwback to the 40s and stuff. But I kept being like, oh, this is a very noir plot point right here. This is a hardball detective plot point right here, but just in a sort of tongue in cheek kind of way. I did laugh when... Robert Downey Jr. is in the bathroom and he's peeing when he notices the body and he like turns startled. Huh? And then he's talking on the phone with Perry. I got a body here. I peed on it. Can they trace that? And <laughs> Perry's like, what? I peed on it. 
why did you pee on a corpse? Yeah, it's it's really good. He's like, I didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. And so now the the three of them are kind of in the, in the mess, and it it takes the next act of the movie to churn through all of the the clues and the the way that they end up lining up. And this is right around when I really felt like it was doing the whole motion of the plot thing because there kept being some new wrinkle. There's like three different young women who they suspect the body of being. At one point, they think it's the daughter of the movie producer. But then they also think that, wait, maybe it's actually Harmony's sister. But then, oh, wait, there's also this other girl who has pink hair. I guess they don't think that the body's her because they see her after the body. But there's just kind of a lot of these moving pieces in the mystery. And one kind of centerpiece gag of the the movie is Harmony and Harry have this thing where they it seems like they're on the verge of finally hooking up and then they find something to argue about. And so one of it is like when Harmony realizes that Harry wasn't actually a detective. He was just saying that to get closer to her. And I think I think that's the fight that they're in the middle of when she slams the door in his face, except his hand is in the door jam and the, this big heavy door severs off his finger when she slams the door on it. And so now in the rest of the movie, he's got like his severed finger that he's carrying around with him. And he keeps like getting it reattached and then losing it again. Exactly, yeah. I, I thought this was pretty funny. And then of course at one point he's trying to get his fingerprints off of something and a dog comes into the scene and takes the finger. So now he's like, I, they're going to know it's me because my finger is literally here. And it's... Of course, delivered with all this banter is pretty funny. Um, I think the finger ends up getting eaten by the dog, though. So R.I.P. finger. Right. Yeah, the dog swallows it. Ends the movie without the finger. I thought it would have been funny if he had ended the, the movie with the finger finally back attached. But I guess it gets eaten by a dog. He takes the loss of the finger surprisingly well. It's played all for comedy, but slamming your finger in a door hurts a lot. I did that not too long ago. Well, especially if it's hard enough that it knocks your finger off. Are you kidding me? Like, that would be debilitating pain. But yeah, it's like a scene later, he's just like grumpy carrying his finger around, you know? At one point, he does take painkillers for it, though, and he falls asleep in the back of the car when they're like staking out some of the people involved in the crime. And while he's sleeping in the car, someone steals the car. And it turns out to be this woman in the pink hair that I mentioned, who's another kind of piece of this whole mystery. And when he wakes up, the car is at some house and he like goes into the house and he hides under the bed when he hears someone moving. And then he witnesses this woman getting murdered. So now there's another dead woman. Now we're up to three dead people, all of them young women. That is one thing I, I saw people criticize is like the worst violence in this movie is basically all against women and everything against men is pretty light and comic, which maybe but I, again, I feel like that's kind of in the spirit of being a 40s noir, too. Right. So the breakthrough clue for them is that the very first time they encountered the body, when the two masked men were trying to dispose of the car in the lake that had the body in it, the, the body in it was not wearing underwear. And they apparently are able to hear this and be like, oh, she must have actually been a patient at a mental hospital. Which I guess it's like a thing at mental hospitals that you don't wear underwear because it's something you could strangle yourself with or something like that. That was a bit of a leap for me, but they apparently figured it out and it turned out to be the right clue. 
Right, I feel like there could be other reasons for going commando. Yeah. And another piece of the context is the woman wasn't raped, so why was her underwear off if she wasn't raped? And I guess... Okay. But the important thing is it gets us to the mental hospital, and so... The climax is takes place basically at this hospital and then a chase away from it. And I feel like this is actually some satire on Hollywood. Like all of Hollywood ends up boiling around an insane asylum, basically. Like the, the crux of the matter comes down to these crazy people in, the, in a mental hospital. And it didn't hit that note too hard, but there were some moments in here where I could tell that Shane Black, who, if you go and read some of the stories, he fought with producers and like he got kicked off of Lethal Weapon 2 when he was going to be the writer and producer for that or something. Uh, so he he's a little cynical about Hollywood, not quite as cynical as um, David Lynch and Mulholland Drive, but definitely a little bit cynical at the, the Hollywood machinery. And so here was my take. Here was my read of what the, the resolution to this mystery was. So. It turns out that Harmony's sister had been abused by their dad when she was a kid. And so Harmony, basically, to help the sister cope, said, that's not really our father. Our real father is a big shot in L.A. And so Harmony's sister went to L.A. and found this big Hollywood producer who is named Harlan Dexter and decided that, oh, he's actually my dad. But then Harlan Dexter, who was getting sued by his daughter, had his daughter killed and then had another person pretend to be his daughter to rescind the lawsuit. And then Harlan Dexter hooked up with this actress who looked like his daughter. And when Harmony's sister saw that, she got re-traumatized because, oh, it turns out that my real dad, the one in Hollywood, also hooks up with daughters because remember the other actress is supposed to be the daughter. And I think that's how it all played out, but it was kind of confusing, kind of noir spinning the wheels really quickly. Right. That's what I got out of it too. So I think we followed it accurately. What I found confusing, like the hench guys that they're running from multiple times, I wasn't quite sure what their deal was. I guess they just worked for Harlan Dexter, but it's like they die kind of early on that's film noir baby there's there's extra characters and stuff that's all right it was good though it's fun and at the climax there's this car chase scene where at one point a coffin gets thrown out of a car and goes flying over an overpass and like lands just balanced on a highway sign and then Robert Downey Jr. ends up tipping over the side of the bridge, and then he's dangling from the coffin, dangling from the highway sign. And the execution of all of that was pretty wild. Yeah, it was a fun set piece. The, the climactic set piece is pretty good. I'm not entirely sold on Shane Black as a director from this. Like, He changes like styles three times, because he's got this framing story, and then all of a sudden it's like weird handheld footage towards the end. It's like a webcam almost or something. I don't know. It, it's okay direction. But to me, this was more about the writing and the acting than it was about the the set pieces. There were a couple of cool shots. Like when um, Harry witnesses the murder of the girl in pink hair, it's framed entirely from him 
being under the bed and not seeing but only hearing what's going on. And then like you hear the gunshot and then you see the body collapse. And this woman is like, it's almost like a jump scare. She's looking right at, at Harry. I thought that was an interesting uh, shot and composition there too. But yeah. When you say there's different styles, I can kind of see that this was a film that started with one idea and then other ideas kind of crept in and it became something else. Definitely. And so after that climax, we have the denouement, the, the closing action to seal everything up. So in the climax, Gay Perry gets shot. I guess Harry also gets shot, but it seems like Gay Perry is dead. What I thought happened was like the bullet went all the way through Perry and only got Robert Downey Jr. a little bit. Yeah. Although there is a gag where Robert Downey Jr. has one of the books and, oh, it stopped the bullet. Except then he pulls it out and the, it's got, the bullet has gone completely through one of the books that it was a, a book by the author that had been repeatedly coming up in the story that he had been keeping in his pocket. Robert Downey Jr. Did I say that? No, you almost did. <laughs> Stumbling through my words, yeah. But then everybody ends up surviving, and they kind of lampshade it, how it's kind of corny that that the good guys always survive. Like, it seems like they're dead, but then, oh, they survive. Uh, I kind of agreed. Why, why, you know, if you're going to go through the drama of having someone get killed and then just undo it to make us not feel bad about it, it's like, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too, man. But I guess you can if you're Shane Black and you're writing this narrator who's calling it out. It did seem like Perry died, and then he was just there again. But whatever. Scream 6? Uh, the Scream movies in general have been kind of bad about this, where it seems like someone's murdered, but then they survive. Like, I think Dewey gets stabbed pretty bad in the first one, and then he ends up being there for almost all the Scream movies. And then in Scream 6, like, five characters get stabbed who end up surviving. And it's like, what's even the point anymore? If you can just get stabbed brutally, and then you're not dead you're still around it's like okay there's no stakes anymore anyways a couple other things from the end harry decides to become a real private investigator and he and gay perry team up and of course he ends up together with harmony and then there's this weird scene at the end where gay perry finds harmony's dad and accosts him for being an abusive bad father I'm not sure we needed that scene there. I had kind of moved on from the sexual violence against the daughters that didn't need a reminder of that as we were kind of in the happy ending. But that that's in there at the end, too. And that's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. What are some things we haven't talked about yet, Brian? Any other lingering thoughts or moments from the story that we missed? I think we gave it pretty good shrift, pretty good treatment. But yeah, it all lives or dies by Robert Downey Jr.'s style, and he's got a lot of it. So he carries the film in a good way. Agreed. In fact, the whole cast is pretty good, but this honestly is like the ideal vehicle for Robert Downey Jr. It's kind of taking the witty part of Iron Man of Tony Stark and like instead of having a whole bunch of dumbass comic book stuff on top of that that's all it is it's just him doing that thing the whole time and it works really well he's very very funny in this i've read it he he thinks is one of his best movies one of his best performances i think that's fair he's a good judge and he's also really funny in tropic thunder that's an, another one we should talk about at some point we didn't find room for it in movie about making movies 
Oh, definitely. Man, I forgot that was him. He just disappears into the role then. Yeah. He's a guy playing a guy disguised as another guy. Did you have other talking points to hit? No, I kind of hit most of them as we went. I mean, I, I agree completely with you that it lives and dies by the terrific, terrifically funny banter. And I, I, I kind of like, even though it, it kind of had that sort of Frankenstein feel of like a bunch of things that were pieced together over time. I actually thought it kind of felt as a whole. It, it felt like one thing that just had these different identities that it kind of got to shift through. Like I thought the the chemistry between Robert Downey Jr. and Michelle Monaghan was really good. And I could have believed them if they were in like a dedicated romantic comedy. I think it would be more like a not a traditional rom-com, but like a sort of zesty action comedy type of thing. Um, even if you had taken out the buddy comedy aspect of it, I could definitely see it work. And I kind of like how it, it had all these different little pieces like, oh, it's a little bit of a Hollywood satire. It's a little bit of a noir pastiche. It's a little bit of a buddy comedy. It's a little bit of a rom-com. And yet it all still feels like just this very slick, witty thing. I don't know. I think it, I think it holds together really well and it's immensely entertaining. I will say if I had seen this movie when I was like 18 or 19, it probably would have been one of my favorite movies and I probably would be even more fond of it right now. One of my childhood friends who I kind of grew grew apart from as time passed, like I was friends with him in elementary and middle school. And then I added him on Facebook, of course, and we were friends on Facebook. And every now and then I would pull up his profile and check on him. And you used to have, do you remember in the early days of Facebook where there was like sections where it was like favorite movies, favorite blank. And one of them was favorite quotes. And it was like a block where you could type out stuff. Right. I remember. So his favorite quotes, he had like 10 of them and they were all movie quotes. This was the guy who introduced me to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He introduced me to Star Wars. He introduced me to a few other movies, Field of Dreams. Wes Anderson, he actually showed me half of uh, a Wes Anderson movie. I don't even remember which one when I was in middle school. And boy, did I not get it then. But anyways, in college, when he had his Facebook profile, his favorite quotes, half of them were kiss, kiss, bang, bang quotes. And so I thought about him a lot. I wonder what, how he's doing these days because he <laughs> deleted his social media presence. And I have no idea how to find him because of that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to say you should reach out to him to do a supplemental, but I guess you can't. One last unrelated thing. Have you seen the movie Due Date? No. So that's a comedy that's got Robert Downey Jr. in the lead. I guess it's from 2010. But I'm familiar with Due Date because at one point my brother had like an Amazon download for a movie or an Apple Store download for a movie, and he picked randomly Due Date. And then for a long time, that was the only movie he had on his computer. So <laughs> he's seen Due Date probably like 15 times, and he showed it to me once when he was in just like the Rock of Ages spree of watching it over and over. And it's essentially Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, except instead of Steve Martin and is it John Candy? This is Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. And instead of getting back for Thanksgiving, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to get back to witness the birth of his child. Interesting. Well... Maybe we could have your brother on and talk about that at some point. 
that's a good idea. Why why is that the movie? Why yeah, why that? Yeah. That could be a good episode. All right, but now we can say, is it good? Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour to Good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang good? I'm right on the fence between two ratings. I did enjoy it, especially... Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, I can definitely see this being, I guess, not a star maker because he had had big movies before this, but that it would put him on people's radar ahead of Iron Man, I can definitely see. That said, there is some complexity to the plot, as befits a noir movie, especially like a self-referential meta-noir movie. So there were a couple times that I was kind of scratching my head. I think I'm going to land on the very highest five out of eight, like just a hair short of the six. Very good. What about you, Dan? What's what's your feeling? I feel like I might have played up the stuff that had me scratching my head a little bit too much, because as I've said now a couple of times, how funny it is and how quickly it moves. And it's just got like a, a zest to it really carries the movie and it makes it worth watching by itself. And it really drew me in. At one point I was like, man, this is a strong seven, a strong, exceptionally good. It kind of loses steam a little bit in the middle when it gets too much in its plot. And the dumb 2005 gay jokes wore me down, but I still had a terrific time with it overall. And I just kind of liked If you take each of its identities, not any one of those identities is unique, but when you throw it all together in one film, it still kind of feels unique because there's nothing that's quite this combination of factors carried by the the wit of the script and the, the performances. So I'm on the line between a six and a seven. And I'm going to just go ahead and give it a soft seven. I'm going to give this an exceptionally good because I think it is, it's just an immensely entertaining film. I think it's something that you could just throw on and watch and laugh. And it's, it's good fun. I don't know why it took me so long to watch it. been hearing it recommended since basically it came out, but I'm glad I finally did. I think it's just an immensely entertaining film. There we go, Brian. Nice. I do appreciate it a little more. Now that you've said it's by the the Wunderkind screenwriter, that's a crazy story that he had that meteoric rise and fall. Yeah. And I think I'll be checking out other Shane Black works. I might go revisit Lethal Weapon and I'll definitely put the nice guys on my soon to watch queue. I'm trying to cram through 2023 movies I've missed, but maybe once I get past that, I will uh, watch the nice guys. Just remember, Dan, you're literally the only one holding yourself to that expectation. So you could easily watch any other movie and just make that as a choice. That's true. Although I I don't know if I mentioned it on the pod or not, but I did join a film critic society and you're supposed to review 50 movies and they're not 100% clear on whether it's 50 movies of that year or 50 movies overall. So I've like way surpassed 50 movies overall, but I'm just a little bit short of 50 movies in 2023 that I've written reviews for. So I'm trying to hit that before the year ends. So if they go and audit me on that thing, I'll, I'll have hit the, the benchmark. But anyways, by the way, you can always go check out my reviews on thegoodsreviews.com. I, I try to get a couple out a week. 
And then we've been having Andrew Milne, who appeared on the podcast previously, doing a terrific retrospective on the career of Gareth Edwards, who is the martial arts maestro um, who did The Raid, Raid 2, and, and a few other movies. So definitely recommend you come check us out there. So anyways, Brian, enough ramble. What are we going to be watching next week? Well, first, get this. Michelle Monaghan is also in Due Date. No! Yeah. That's wild. I guess we gotta see it. But that's not gonna be what we watch for the next episode, because this is the Christmas season. And so the film I want to talk about, last year we watched Elmo Saves Christmas. This year it's time for Ernest Saves Christmas. Our first installment from the long-running Ernest series starring Jim Varney. How much Ernest have you consumed, Dan? I haven't watched any Ernest. Um, I think I'll bring it up. The, there's a recent SNL skit that brought up Ernest. I'll mention that when we, we talk about it next week. But I know he's a touchstone for you. I know, Brian. Definitely. Early Ernest exposure. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of that character and is that like early radiation exposure like it <laughs> disfigures your brain it changed my dna yeah yeah so he started as a commercial pitchman and the commercials got popular enough that he got his own feature films and the first was ernest goes to camp but the second was ernest saves christmas from the mid 80s i'll get you that exact year when we throw it on and i assume it's safely a Christmas movie if it has Christmas in the title. Yes. I would say the main character. I mean, I guess it's Ernest, but I think Santa Claus is, is maybe the main character of Ernest Saves Christmas. It's very much about the business of being Santa Claus. Like, what does that job entail? How does one do the job of Santa Claus? Oh, kind of like uh, the Tim Allen movie, too. Very much so. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm glad to finally see an Ernest movie. And as we get closer and closer to Christmas, Brian, it's coming up two less than two weeks away as of the recording of this podcast. You might hear this after Christmas, listeners. Who knows? So, yep, it's almost here. So we wanted to get some more joy in your stocking. As always, listeners, thank you very, very much. And Brian, thank you for indulging me on some Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And we'll see you next week.